Welcome everybody to the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. Today we are going to talk about crazy things, massage guns, do they work, fainting, if cyclists have a propensity for such things. And we're also going to talk about peaking and we have Hannah Finchamp here, Hannah Otto, forgive me, Hannah, um, to join us and to talk about that with Coach Chad. First things first though, we have to congratulate Megan Hackenin. She's amazing. Uh, she's been on our, our, our successful athletes podcast before she just won the 24 hour world championships, the world time trial championships again. Uh, amazing. She did 478.8 miles or 770.5 kilometers in 24 hours, 21.1 mile an hour average. She held this 0.65 IF she burned 15,000 calories and she only drank her calories. She said, uh, with F2C nutrition is the brand that she was using. She was second overall. She only lost out to like a, a, a rising star, um, over from Europe that came over for it, but just an absolutely incredible. She uses trainer road to train. Uh, she's super impressive. Uh, everyone should go check it out. Look up Megan Hackenden. We'll link to her Instagram profile in the description for this podcast. Uh, she's amazing. So congrats, Megan. Pretty cool. Hey, Chad. Yeah, it's impressive. Uh, I, I can't even imagine <laughs> doing that for geez, five, six hours, let alone 24. <laughs> yeah. Super impressive. Yeah. Uh, okay. With that, let's jump into Johannes's question. He says, Hey, trainer road team. Thanks for the podcast and the amazing cycling specific information you all put out. I was recently tempted to buy a Theragun, but resisted the urge as I was not sure on the actual measurable benefits of it on my recovery. I've, and these are the massage guns that we've all seen or percussive guns. Uh, however you want to call them. I've listened to Chad's deep dive on mobility and stretching many times, so I now wonder what effect a massage gun, or in fancy terms, percussive therapy, has on recovering and mobility. I could imagine it reaches nooks and crannies that foam rolling and stretching can't target, or that it has its own effect on the muscles and fascia. Would love a deep dive on the topic from Chad. Thanks for the amazing podcast, Johannes. Well, Chad, uh, you had your plate full with other deep dives, so I took this one. Yep. <laughs> so, sorry, Johannes, um, but... Let's get into it. First of all, the theory behind these massage guns and how they work, there's really two different things that you hear people reference them for, uh, or in terms of how they work and then their benefits are separate from this, but how they work. Some people say it helps improve circulation, which the research proves that there was a study that showed basically they just measured muscle temperature or skin temperature after you're using a massage gun and it increased. And that's been repeated multiple times by researchers. Uh, yeah, it does increase circulation. There's others that say like it helps relieve knots and there seems to be not a lot of clarification on that after if it actually works, but yes, it does indeed improve circulation. And the whole point behind this and what they claim is that it helps you with recovery also that it could help you with performance. So we're going to look into that and in some other claims. Uh, but first things first, there's, there's kind of like increasing buzz about them being dangerous and causing harm. Uh, one of, there's a study actually from Chen and colleagues in 2020, and I'm just going to read from this one. It's a, a case about rhabdomyolysis. A young Chinese woman with untreated iron deficiency anemia presented with fatigue and pain in her thigh muscles for three days and tea colored urine for one day after cycling and subsequently receiving per, percussion gun treatment by her coach for the purpose of massage and relaxing tired muscles. Muscle tenderness and multiple hematomas were found on her thighs, and her urinalysis indicated hemoglobinuria. I hope I said that right. Uh, her serum creatine kinase was reported as undetectably high, a hallmark of serious muscle damage, leading to a diagnosis of severe rhabdomyolysis. Um, if you look at the study and start to look into it a bit more, 
she just did like 20 to 30 minutes of riding a bike in a, like a spin bike in a gym. And she did that for three days prior. And this was not unprecedented. She'd done this sort of thing regularly beforehand. Uh, it's unknown, however, entirely if her coach was using it per, uh, correctly. Also, there is kind of like a, a, a an assumed potential connection uh, between anemic patients and uh, a propensity to muscle damage. In the in this case, there's one other case where they say that they've seen something similar to this. Uh, but uh, regardless, it seems like what the big unknown here is how this massage gun was being used. In this case, on this person, it sounds truly traumatic. Uh, they said that she had splotchy, dark uh, bruising and blood pooling all throughout her thighs, which I can't imagine how that would happen. <laughs> uh, pretty terrifying. Um, that said, that's one case that's been identified in the research. There's one other case that was identified in the research of vertebral ar artery dissection. Uh, so this is something that happens when people um, undergo trauma sometimes to the spinal cord and to everything else that in that region. And there was one person, Solkowski and colleagues in 2022, published this case study where they looked at this person who repeatedly used the, the massage gun on their neck uh, due to neck soreness and fatigue and that sort of thing. And they found that there was vertebral art artery dissection for this patient, which is kind of dangerous. Yeah, Chad. Yeah, I think both of these kind of support the notion that it has to be aggressive in order to be effective. I and mean, people really go to work on it. And I've been guilty of it myself with foam rolling and, and other forms of stretching and whatnot. And the more massage therapists or sports therapists that I see tell me the same thing. And we've said this, it doesn't have to hurt. It probably shouldn't hurt actually. So in, in both these cases, they're taken to extremes and, geez, even beyond in the case of oh, yeah. muscle blotching and, and actual arterial dissection. That is, That has to be some very aggressive use of a percussive gun. Yeah, and for what it's worth, Hannah, I don't know uh, the like because I know that you've used massage guns and you use them. Uh, I never use the hard attachments. I always use the soft one because – you know, I, I'm not saying I've ever come close to, to, to ar artery dissection, but having it bounce off your bones sometimes, and it's got like a hard end on the end, it's, it's not comfortable. So I just go with the soft one because it feels like it accomplishes the same goal. Are you the same with that? Yeah, I'm the same. And you really should never use these on bony places in, on your body. That's not the purpose for them. And so it's painful. That should be a sign to you. This isn't where you should be using this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, absolutely. So yeah, I have to step back and ask like what the goal is. And if the goal is to feel good, and once again, we're all assuming that you're using it properly, which properly, according to the research looks like five minutes, maybe up to 10 minutes at a time, but really a little bit goes a long way. You don't need to do a whole lot and you don't need to press into the muscle difficult or with any sort of force. You can just put the gun onto percussive mode and then run it over the skin. And that's enough to accomplish the goals of increasing circulation for the various different outcomes that people do this for. So you don't have to press really hard. Um, and in that case, it feels great. So if your goal is just for it to feel good, a hundred percent do it. Uh, these things are really good at, at giving you a massage and it's much more accessible. You don't have to go, uh, either higher or, Go visit a massage therapist, uh, pay for that sort of service. And I'm sorry, massage therapist, if this is it, if this is me, you know, uh, stopping people from going to you to reverse that. Absolutely. These guns are not as precise, strategic or productive as a massage therapist to be able to work on specific issues, right? A massage therapist that's well-trained can accomplish much more than a percussive instrument. 
However, if you're just looking to aid recovery and accomplish the goals, like we'll talk about here in a bit, these can be a helpful addition to your program. Uh, so let's, oh yeah, go ahead, Anna. No, I just think that a lot of people really underestimate the value of feeling good because as athletes, we're so focused on outcome all the time that a lot of people I hear will say, well, I'm not going to purchase that or I'm not going to use that because it doesn't do X, Y, or Z. All it does is make me feel good and feeling good actually can end up ultimately having a measurable benefit, especially in recovery. If it's helping you, maybe it's just giving you a specific thing that makes you sit down and rest. Maybe it's helping you enter the parasympathetic nervous um, system state because you're feeling good and you're feeling relaxed. So don't underestimate the value of feeling good. Oh yeah. So well said, if you could pile on a bunch of fractions of a percent from placebo effect on top of me, I'm all for it. Like, like, like it's improving performance in the end, right? Uh, that's, that's a really important detail. I think that's why when people say, you hear athletes say this in various different sports, but performing in front of a home crowd or being able to sleep in my, in my own bed just felt great. I don't, who knows if they actually got better sleep or not, but they are in the mind state that they are in a better place. And thus that enables them to be able to perform better. So yeah, sub subjective measures are real. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, um, yeah, let's get into recovery because that's probably the most direct benefit that us endurance athletes are looking at here. Um, I would say after looking at the research on this, that the verdict is yes, it could possibly improve recovery. Uh, the research supports it in the following ways. So there's a study by Imtiaz. I hope I'm saying that right as well. Uh, and colleagues in 2014, uh, the study title was to compare the effect of vibration therapy and massage and prevention of delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS. Uh, in this study, they had 45 healthy female and non-athlete subjects split into three different groups. They did 30 slow, heavy curls. Uh, like the way that they did this is they basically had to four count their way, uh, from full extension up to a full curl. And then after that, they were told to slowly bring it back down. They had 30 seconds or 45 seconds in between the reps. And they did that 30 times. This was, there was no precedence. There was no pre-training for anything like this. Uh, they were really just trying to overwork the biceps muscle and give it doms. That was the goal of this sort of, uh, this sort of effort. The weight that they ended up using, uh, was sub substantial as well as based off of one rep max that they had established beforehand. Um, so it wasn't like they were repeating one rep max the whole time they did a, a, a downgraded portion of that, but that's basically how it went in the control group. They did no pre exercise intervention, but in the massage group, they did 15 minutes of a controlled massage on the bicep before they did the exercise. Now this is key before they did the exercise In the vibration group, they just did five minutes of 50 Hertz vibration on the bicep, which that's typically representative of most massage guns, like the middle range of their ability and their speed usually ends up sitting somewhere around 50 Hertz. So again, in the massage group, they did 15 minutes of actual manual massage from a massage therapist. When they were doing that, they had a person observing that to make sure that they weren't doing anything unique in between individuals, but they were following the same patterns. Uh, and then the, the vibration group, five minutes of using the massage gun. This was done before from the results. So they had self-reported soreness. Uh, they also measured maximal isometric force, range of motion, one rep max, creatine kinase, and lactate dehydrogenase were all measured. The reported muscle soreness in the massage and vibration groups was significantly lower than the control group. So right there, that shows that in this study, soreness was reduced. And once again, this is doing it before, not after. Uh, creatine kinase was significantly lower than in the control group. 
um, or than the control group in the vibration and massage groups. And that's usually, uh, Chad Wright, creatine kinase is a marker of when people are experiencing DOMS. There's usually a high amount of that in the muscle. Muscle correct? damage. Yep. Yep. And then lactate dehydrogenase in the vibration group was significantly uh, lower than in the massage group, which is also significantly lower than in the control group, which is interesting to see. So in that case, uh, it shows that the vibration is as effective as massage and in some cases more effective than massage at reducing soreness um, and potentially muscle damage that a person has when you use it beforehand. So that's interesting to see. And there's quite a few different studies. I picked that one specifically, but there's quite a few different studies that test that very thing and they show similar results to this. And in every case, it's them using it before the exercise, not after the exercise. Um, in terms of increasing mobility, cause that could be another one that I could see some athletes looking at, particularly if you're coming back from an injury, if you have a propensity for, you know, whether it's it band issues or hip issues, ankle issues, when you're pedaling on the bike, uh, and you're looking to increase your range of motion and be able to have that coming into workouts. I'd say the verdict on this one is also possibly after looking at the research, there was a study by Andreas Conrad, who is a triathlete, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, and his colleagues in 2020, they looked at the acute effects of a percussive massage treatment with a hypervolt device, which is just a massage gun on plantar flexor muscles, range of motion and performance. So what they did is they had 16 healthy male subjects split into two groups. They performed the following two times with a 10 day or two day break in between 10 minute warm up at 60 RPM and then on a bike at 90 Watts. After that, they did range of motion on ankle dorsiflexion and maximal voluntary calf tests of, uh, or, or contraction tests of the calf. The massage gun treatment was then applied for five minutes to the calf muscle or no intervention, uh, was applied at all. After that, they did range of motion, ankle dorsiflexion tests and maximal voluntary contraction tests as well. Once again, and the results on this one is that the massage gun group had significant range of motion improvement compared to the control but there was no difference in maximal voluntary contraction. So it helped them with range of motion. However, it did not help when they were looking at making the muscle contract any stronger. So aiding in performance in that regard, that one didn't show up. And there's a lot of studies that also back up this one. This is just the one that I picked in particular. Uh, Imtiaz in the, that group, that study I mentioned before, they also backed this up where they saw that massage and vibration had significant positive effects on range of motion. And they measured this two and three days post-exercise, which is quite interesting as well. So, uh, it was trending upward while it was trending downward in the other way. Uh, but the other one for all of us athletes is increasing performance. That's a big thing. If these massage guns can somehow make us faster, they make us feel better that could help but also if they could make us faster that could be great but there's not a lot of research in fact i couldn't find any studies that were looking at the effect on endurance athletes in particular on like time trial performance or anything like that instead there was a study uh, that came uh, from iran it was from otadi and colleagues in 2019 uh, their study says a prophylactic effect of local vibration on the quadriceps muscle fatigue in non-athletic males a randomized controlled trial study this is an interesting one because they had uh, 30 healthy, non-athletic young males were split into two groups in a randomized crossover study. The others are not crossover studies. And what that means is that you have one group get one intervention, and then they swap with the other group, and then they get the intervention as well. And that can help you understand when some people are just responders to something and some people are not responders. If you have a large enough group and you swap them over, you can figure all of that out. So they had one group that was split into massage, another group that was split into no massage, and then they eventually swapped. 
the way that they measured this uh, is beforehand, separate from the experiment, they measured the maximum voluntary contraction, and it was measured using a via like a dynamometer and pushing until exhaustion. So that's the sort of thing when you see them sitting down in a chair and holding with their arms tight, and then they're lifting their leg as high, like forward, they're extending their lower leg forward, and then they're trying to bring it back down. Uh, you might have seen athletes do this. It's pretty common to see. Uh, so they measured this beforehand and then the experiment, they achieved that same peak that they had via the dynamometer and pushing until exhaustion. And then 30 seconds after that, the massage group received massage gun treatment and the control group had the gun pressed to their leg with equal force, but the unit was powered off, which I thought that must've been really interesting to be in that group of like, <laughs> aren't you going to turn it on? <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, just sure this is how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, once again, placebo could be at play here. Um, but it's interesting just the same that they still applied the same force because they said that what they did is when they turned on the vibration, they didn't press down at all. They just rested the unit on the leg and then ran it over the muscle in the same pattern that they did when they had the unit off. So it's actually like, you know, placebo could be brought in here, but it is an interesting way to try to really get an, as close to a, a fair comparison as possible. After that, they then measured the maximum voluntary contraction again in the same way, and they measured it until the fatigue point, and that was defined. Uh, basically, if they could not push 50% or more of what their peak was before the experiment, then they said, okay, that's your time to exhaustion. At that point, that's when we'll cut it off. So the results for this, massage had a significant, in their words, positive effect on extending time to exhaustion. Uh, so this is they were able to push longer once they got the massage that they got in between these, these maximum voluntary contraction sessions. So this is interesting, although it's a bit of a different sort of effort than what a cyclist put out, you know, like we're talking about something that could last 10 seconds, 15 seconds, five seconds, depending on, on what they did, uh, compared to, I don't know, like, you know, Leadville, like Hannah raced <laughs> seven hours or for a lot of us, it might be nine or 10 hours. It's pretty different. So it's hard to extrapolate that across to say it will help endurance athletes, but nonetheless, it stands on its own as saying that it did help in time to exhaustion in this sort of maximal style effort, which is interesting. They did note that there was no significant difference in, in, in Tyaz's study, the one I referenced earlier, that there was no significant difference in maximum isometric force, but better retention of one rep max in vibration than massage and control. So this is in that previous study that I talked about when they split them up into vibration, massage, and control groups. They noticed that a person was able to do their one rep max and they were able to do it days after uh, with greater ease when they were in the vibration group than when they were in the massage and control group. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, for Conrad's study, they found no difference in muscle voluntary contraction between the massage and control groups. So terms of improving performance, I feel like it's least likely, uh, to, to improve there, but recovery seems plausible. Mobility also seems plausible feeling good. Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. They feel great as long as you use them correctly. Uh, Hannah, how do you use yours when, when in relation to your training or racing? Yeah, I really like to use them actually before I train. I find that it personally, I find that it can help to accelerate my warm up and just make me feel better when I initially start, which for me, at least mentally, that's really helpful. I know that I can get on the bike and even though it's not great, make an initial assessment of how I feel on the day. And it's always nice when that's a little bit better. I also think it's really helpful 
for times like if you're dealing with something like maybe some quadriceps tendonitis or something that experts would uh, recommend a longer warm up anyways. I think increasing blood flow with the percussion device can actually help facilitate some of that warm up without having to, for example, be out in harsh conditions or something like that for even longer. Yeah, like the rides you've been doing recently, as I've seen on your Instagram. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's like finish the ride and then curl up in blankets. It's been so cold. Um, <laughs> Uh, Chad, how do you use massage guns? Uh, and you could even, I don't know if you use it with strength training or anything else too, but how do you mm -hmm. use them? I usually just use it in response to a tight muscle. So in, in almost entirely these days, knots in my neck, and that's probably more attributable to my sleeping positions than anything else. But <laughs> rather than trying to hold pressure on it, I find they work really well in terms of releasing those, those little knots. So whether or not that's backed by research, the, the benefit is clear in my situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've found, so I haven't done it before. I've, I guess I have before I've done it right before I do a session, something like that, because I've seen that referenced in the research that that's what you're supposed to do. After looking through this research, that's definitely how I want to start using mm -hmm. it. I think that could be really beneficial. However, how I use it more commonly is what Hannah said. I've found that like, for example, running, if I take a break from running and then I come back from running, my soleus tends to get pretty sore. Um, and when, or my hip will get sore and it's typically in spots where I find that it's my assumption is it's hard to get blood flow there or something because the recovery tends to be pretty long and just running the massage gun, not pressing in super hard, but just running it over that region and doing that some, you know, just consistently in the evenings and the mornings, whatever, that really is helpful. I have found this is N equals one. This is not scientific. This is just my personal experience, but I found that to be really helpful to accelerate recovery from those sort of like very acute injuries when something is become sore from working out. So, and that's, and once again, it's not pressing hard. The, the, the science backs up that this increases circulation. And that's really, I think that we underappreciate what circulation does for our muscles and our body. Uh, it's, it's really the system of how it builds up, repairs, cleans out, does all the wonderful things. If we don't have circulation, we lose all that. And uh, I think that perhaps we overestimate also that our every part of our body just has perfect circulation. This is a great way to intervene and like, once again, as long as you're using it well, in a pretty non-invasive way uh, to be able to help that and, and aid that really helpful process. So mm -hmm. in my mind, they're not a hoax. Yeah, so. and I want to <laughs> remind everyone too that even though it may be questionable that they directly increase athletic performance. If you can increase mobility, increase recovery, increase feeling good, um, mitigate injuries, all of those things can ultimately increase athletic performance. So it's not a wash. <laughs> yeah. I say this in the YouTube videos that, um, that I'm putting out now at the cycling science explained videos. We're going to talk about that one a little later, but you should go and check out the new one that I just published on altitude training. But, uh, if I want to focus every resource that I have into making me more consistent with my training, because mm. that's, what's going to pay off the most. And if this is going to help me with recovery and everything in between, then like you said, that will end up delivering performance improvements in the end. Smart, uh, smart, smart way to think, Hannah. Mm -hmm. Um, let's go into Mason's question. It says, Hey, trainer Rope, my 2022 racing season came to an end or to an abrupt end after experiencing what my cardiologist described as vasovagal syncope. Is that how you say it, uh, Chad? I syncope. Syncope. Cool. Yeah. In plan. Thanks, man. Uh, in plain English, I fainted. I 
the the real issue was I sustained a serious concussion as a result of my head striking the tile floor on the way down. My gosh, Mason, that sounds horrific. Um, I'm curious to hear what you guys know about trained cyclists having a proclivity for fainting. Since my accident, I've heard from several cycling friends that have experienced similar episodes in the past. Like many cyclists, I have a low resting heart rate. What might a high degree of vascular fitness contribute to vasovagal syncope? Well, what's Chad, you dug into this one. I did, and I went pretty deep. Uh, so we're going to back up <laughs> one deep dive with another deep dive. And this is, this is where I would tell Nate that he can go you know, take a nap, go for a wee, <laughs> text his buddies, whatever it is he does when I, when I go on and on and on. But you just did that, so I, uh, he's not here, so we don't have to worry about it, right? Yeah, that's right. And um, we're all in tune. This is going to be a good one. <laughs> Okay. So uh, again, I did dive pretty deeply on this and it wasn't really my intention at the outset, but I, the more I read on it, the more I realized it needs to be thoroughly addressed. It's not just a quick superficial treatment because this can be a very, a very serious thing. And what Mason describes is serious in a couple of ways, potentially in one way, definitely in another, as we, as we just learned. So from the jump, before we even start, Nothing we say or do qualifies as medical advice. I want to be very clear on this. Any deeper concerns, more specific questions, any questions left unanswered at the end of this, though there should be basically none because I think I covered everything, involve <laughs> a qualified medical practitioner, okay? I am not a doctor. I just play one on a podcast. All right? <laughs> you actually don't even play one on a podcast. You literally say I'm not a doctor. So, I try you know. to. I try to, but I'm yeah. not sure that message comes across. Okay, so yeah, vasovagal yeah. syncope. First off, what is it? Uh, the vasovagal portion, it's a temporary fall. It has to do with the temporary fall in blood pressure. And then the syncope is just fainting. So uh, th this form in particular of syncope is considered neurally mediated. So it's fainting or, or collapse that's governed or induced by the brain. And it's due to some factors that we'll get into. It's also termed neurocardiogenic syncope or simply reflex syncope. But I really like the neurocardiogenic description because, well, it's, it's more descriptive. There's brain in there. There's heart in there. And it's a thing that's produced via their interaction. And if you wanted to get really simple about it, you could even view it as a, as a brain-heart short circuit, right? You effectively blow a fuse in that portion of your – the central nervous system segment that regulates heart rate, blood pressure, but more on that later. In all cases, it's a transient loss of consciousness and postural tone. So transient's key. This is something that comes and goes. It passes, right? And, and then it's gone. Uh, loss of consciousness is pretty straightforward. But that postural tone, these are the muscles that support us, that keep us upright, whether that be seated or standing. You know, they effectively take a break. And, and, and then in some of the uh, descriptions, I've seen it further described in the absence of head trauma. And I do think it's important to differentiate this from concussive impact. Um, again, it, it is transient in nature, and I'll add that it's usually benign in general, meaning you know it's harmless, no lasting effects, doesn't require treatment, that sort of thing. But the outcomes themselves can be very threatening, and Mason just described one. But think about the ensuing impact. I mean, if you're running and you fall, if, God forbid, you're driving you know, behind the wheel and this happens, uh, going down the stairs, going up them for that matter, riding a bike and all the different ways we ride a bike, that could be catastrophic. Drowning, you know, if this happens in the water, definitely, definitely far from benign. Um, and then additionally and importantly and rarely, thank the heavens, is uh, this can be a more serious a more serious sign of underlying heart issues. And we're going to touch on that. We're actually going to touch on that a couple times in, in a minute here. So now what, what causes vasovagal syn syncope? 
physiologically, it's, it's heart rate and blood pressure drop suddenly. And the more I read on this, the more it seems to me that it's not so much heart rate as, as cardiac output, what the heart's pushing out. But, you know, the, the nuances of it aren't super important here. What it equates to, though, is a reduction in blood flow to the brain. But what causes this drop in blood flow and, and blood pressure for that matter? So the collapse itself can be Exercise-induced, it can be emotionally induced. Think of situations of extreme emotional stress. You know, and I, I hate this one, but imagine you just learned that a loved one died. I mean, people people pass out from, from news such as that. It can be triggered by something as simple as the sight of blood. Uh, you, you've seen that happen too. I maybe even experienced it. But in all, case, it, it, all cases, it, it's caused by a transient global cerebral hypoperfusion. So again, transient, it passes globally cerebral, whole brain, hypoperfuse, not getting enough blood, okay? And this can come about due to a number of things, standing for long periods of time, heat exposure, having blood drawn, which has a, both an impact on your, on your blood volume and maybe even just the side of the blood, fear of injury, not even injury itself, but the fear of it, straining, and I got a kick out of this one, but it's really not anything to laugh at. Myo Clinic's website termed straining or re- related straining to such as to have a bowel movement, which, frankly, I can't think of anything less dignified than falling yeah, <laughs> falling off the toilet in an unconscious state and just where that goes from there. That just sounds terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then no we, we can get into the weeds, and it's hard not to because I learned so much with this topic, and it's very interesting. But there's a you know Frank Starling, Frank-Starling pressure volume curves. There's filling rates and diastolic volume, ventricular compliance and distensibility, all these things. They're super interesting, but really simply, if our heart isn't getting enough blood in, it can't pump enough blood out. Our cardiac output's temporarily insufficient, and this has an immediate and evident impact on brain function. That's it. Okay, so when is it likely to occur? There's really three situations that most of the papers kind of kind of segment it into. First is exercise unrelated, and this accounts for far and away the most of them, uh, 87%. Post-exertional, so you know, just prior, or I'm sorry, just post uh, any form of exertion, but in our case, exercise, an event, a workout, etc. Twelve percent, and then exertional, which is the rarity, at down at one point three percent. So basically, it occurs mostly outside of the exercise realm, and it rarely occurs during ex- exercise. At least when we're looking at youngsters, because the stats that I just listed are culled from a study where they looked at 7,500 14 to 18 year olds of which 474 of them actually had a syncopal spell in the last five years. That post-exertional figure rises from the 12% up to 20% when we generalize this across all ages, at least according to one other research paper. And sadly, according to yet another paper, incidents can increase as we age. There appears to be an age-dependent critical cerebral blood flow threshold at which syncope occurs. So as I read it, the older we get, the more sensitive we get to changes in brain blood flow. I've I've often wondered too, Chad. Sorry, this is a tangent, but maybe somebody else is wondering it, and we don't even have to explore it. But I've often wondered how much of that also has to do with arterial blockage that tends to increase as people age, mm-hmm. or anything else like that too. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that those uh, I'm sure are that complicated factors, factors with this for yeah. sure. Yeah, and and we'll actually touch on something that's very much <laughs> in that vein. 
Okay, so let's look at. <laughs> That's great, Chad. <laughs> tried to avoid it, couldn't do it. Okay, so so let's look at the the post exertion or the post exercise percentage because I think that's most relevant to what we're talking about here. And harken on back, you know, thirty some years, uh, I guess twenty eight years, nineteen ninety four study of collapsed ultra ultra distance or ultra marathoners. Uh, Characteristics that basically in this study they looked at the characteristics of forty six male runners who actually suffer uh, suffered what's termed as exercise associated collapse, so EAC, and they noted amongst other observations that one most cases of EAC occurred post finish line, which is interesting in and of itself. Two, during the the race collapses or the ones that happened during the race, they showed a higher association with readily identifiable medical conditions, so underlying heart issues, etc. And then what I found most interesting is that the runners who did collapse did it more frequently near cutoff times for medals and at race closure times. So mm-hmm. here it, it looks like exercise-associated collapse is more common in athletes who are really coming up against some limits. Mm-hmm. This and then, is, uh, I, I, I feel like cross-country skiing is a good – Anything. You, see those, you know, like well, cross-country skiing is famous for the post-race starfish. You know, oh, like, sure. Uh, you know, but and I, but I wonder how much of that that's different than what you're talking about here, though, Chad. Right? Like it, you're talking about it is until they fall just, unconscious, which I wouldn't yeah. be surprised would happen. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. If not, while they're laying there when they get up, and we'll talk about that too. Um, in di- additionally, in this post-exercise, post-exertional context, recall just just what we we kind of touched on with that orthostatic hypotension that we talked about before, where you rise too fast, you get a little dizzy, a little lightheaded, and can result in syncope. You can pass out. And this can happen well past the race or the workout completion. I mean, it can simply be going from a seated or a lying position into a, a standing position. And this has a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of simple, uh, sorry, similarities here. And, and as far as I, as far as I in, interpret it, if I'm getting this right, I'm pretty sure orthostatic hypotension is a form of vasovagal syncope. So I think I might all be lumped in there. But uh, let's see. So, so really it's, it's, where it's taking place. So the blood's location and maybe even its volume, it leads to this drop in blood pressure, leads to this drop in, in cardiac output. And when we talk about long duration exercise where particular muscles are using the blood for long periods of time and then that exercise is ended abruptly, legs go from requiring a lot of blood to and, and actually receiving assistance from that muscle pump that we discussed when we discussed orthostatic hypotension. So the actual contraction of the muscles facilitates that venous return, pushing of the blood back to the heart. And these are effectively removed from the equation when you go to that dead stop. And you add to this a, a potential for especially over long endurance events, especially ones done in the heat, dehydration and the effects that it has on blood volume. So it comes no surprise that this leads to a situation where the brain's not getting enough blood. So some pre-syncopal symptoms, possibly an actually syncopal episode. And, and while we're actually uh, – see, while we're on the topic of the symptoms, lightheadedness – Pallor, I mean, pale skin, like me right now in the midst of winter, uh, light nausea, <laughs> uh, a feeling of warmth, blurred or tunneled vision, diaphoresis, which is basically a flop sweat. We've all been there. And often enough, doesn't result in unconsciousness. So you can have, you know, all the presyncopal symptoms, not actually experience syncope. And then briefly, and again, importantly, back to that small percentage of the exertional vasovagal syncope. This is where the deeper concerns lie. Because when it happens during exercise, as one paper put it, this could be the single symptom that precedes sudden cardiac death. 
And if you've been in the game long enough, you've inevitably been at an event, uh, whether you, I witnessed it one time in person, I heard about others post-race where this happens. You know, people had underlying congenital defects, heart issues, and it did result in, in death. So it brings us to the question, mm-hmm. should I be worried if I experience it? And that kind of comes down to the question, what could underlie the syncope? You know, what, what inspired it? Because again, the far majority of the occurrences are benign, harmless. They don't require treatment. There are no lasting effects. But it's very important to note that while exertional syncope doesn't necessarily imply cardiac dysfunction, it's not to be taken lightly. Don't casually dismiss this because this is absolutely a situation where you should consult professional medical practitioner. Get an ECG. Get whatever battery attests they see fit. Get cleared for return before reengaging in whatever activity inspired it in the first place. Hmm. Okay. So by now, the astute listener may have surmised that as endurance athletes, we effectively kind of lend support to some of the factors that could lead to an episode of, let's just call it VVS, basal vagal syncope, VVS. So are uh, endurance athletes more susceptible? This is the question, right? And yep, we just are. So are arguably one of the very few downsides to being exercise adapted to having a healthy cardiovascular system. And let's go down the list because there's a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of items on this list. First, there's a physiological phenomenon, a vasodepressor reflex, basically our blood vessels dilate. And in our cases, in our case as cyclists, runners, multi-sport athletes, whatever, It's that potential for blood pooling in the legs that leads to a lower blood pressure due to lowered venous return, lower cardiac output as a result, which then leads to insufficient cerebral perfusion. We just don't get enough blood to the brain. This leads to these issues. And while we're on the topic of that less, uh, that reduced cardiac output, again, consider dehydration. Because if you mismanage your hydration, especially over longer events, especially over hot events or workouts, I guess, your plasma volume becomes reduced. And this means less blood volume and again, less blood being pumped out. And then also, and I didn't see this in any paper, just kind of put this together, consider the ramifications of a still rapidly beating heart with that reduced incoming blood. So now we have a shorter filling time, which means even less cardiac output and crucially less blood for the brain. So uh, by now you probably see where I'm going with this. Maybe warming down has benefits outside of those that we usually consider, right? So through training and the ensuing adaptation, we actually increase what's termed our orthostatic intolerance, just kind of cover, covers all the bases. And, and, and one result is that a simple rapid change in position where we go from seated to standing or laying to standing, and that's basically what orthostatic means, standing, um, can result in this, this whole central nervous system heart misfire. Another result is the the rapid withdrawal of support from those pumping muscles can result in the same CNS heart misfire. So to sum all this up and and to add support for an often seen assertion across these papers that we are particularly predisposed to these blood kind of supply and demand mismatches as endurance athletes, we cultivate lower resistive blood distribution pathways. What you just touched on, Jonathan, we have healthier, cleaner uh, blood vessels. We have higher plasma volumes. And these things in combinations with other things reduce something that's called our total peripheral vascular resistance. There's just less resistance to push the blood through. We cultivate lower resting and submaximal heart rates. We, as endurance athletes, our endurance trained hearts exhibit greater pumping capabilities. 
we over time actually build bigger hearts. And I came across one study that looked at swimming and noted that during the, the stroke's catch phase, systolic blood pressure can rise, you know, normally we, we hope to hover around 120, 130 when the heart is compressed or contracting and pushing out blood, can rise to about 200 uh, millimoles or yeah, millimoles of mercury. And, and this is as a result of both isotonic and isometric contractions. So the muscle's not changing lengths and it's not changing tension. There's no muscle pump even figuring into this yet. And this mean, uh, brought me to a point where I can't help but see the similarities in the initiation of a cycling downstroke, especially when we're doing low cadence, high force work. Same idea. So we're getting this big influx of blood pressure and then a big decrease. Well, my point being is that stresses like these are the basis for dimensionally larger hearts. And then when you add just these three adaptations up, we reduce what's termed the triple product of blood pressure control. Simply, we cultivate lower blood pressure. This is, this is as a result of the things we undergo every day. Additionally, we cultivate more rapid VO2 kinetics. We've talked about this before. Our oxygen delivery on-off switch works increasingly well with aerobic conditioning. We cultivate high levels of rest and digest vagal tone. Through, through the conditioning work we do, our autonomic tone actually shifts more toward the parasympathetic side, of, uh, parasympathetic side of things. We cultivate more capable heart chambers. The chambers themselves, greater filling capacity, greater emptying capacities result both in the combination of result in bigger stroke volumes. So the big takeaway here is we actually actively predispose ourselves to vasovagal syncope. But again, it's – All of that said, yeah, it ahead. is rare. Relatively speaking, right? The, the fatal I mean, end of it, yeah. The the occurrence of sure. it you know, can can happen with, with great frequency, depending. And that leads me to what steps can be taken to avoid it. And this is all in the context of, of post-exertional. So, so this is our most relevant scenario. We're not super concerned with exertional because if that happens, you need to see a doctor. And then outside of exercise, well, that's just not really what we're talking about today. Simply, we just need to manage or support that venous return. Right, We need to give our cardiovascular system a hand sometimes. We can start, again, in the context of post-exertional syncope by warming down. Just don't come to a sudden halt. Rather, keep moving, preferably using the same muscles. We want to facilitate the muscle pumping action that was there rather than just yoink it out of there. Um, another easy get, proper hydration. Touched on this a few times now. Keep your blood volume topped off. This likely includes some sodium management. And then in the case of orthostatic hypotension, the whole standing from seated or lying down position, whether at the end of an event or well post-event or workout, uh, one paper pointed out that squatting and or leg crossing with muscle tensing actually showed an increase in both blood pressure and cardiac output. So the simple act of doing squats, and I know that's not realistic when you're going from standing or seated to standing, but the, the, the leg crossing and muscle tensing is. And I tried to do this just seated, just tense the muscles. And I do this on a plane sometimes just so I don't get cankles by the end of the long flight. But <laughs> if you cross your legs, it's a lot easier to generate quite a lot of muscle activity below the waist. So it, it, it seems to be effective and anecdotally and somewhat tangentially – I've used this following post-ride naps, and, and I did it because I was trying to stave off cramps. I noticed if I did this and then I got up, I was less likely to cramp after a long, hard day. In doing so, I may have inadvertently spared myself some run-ins with vasovagal syncope. Interesting. 
Uh, so I, I can only imagine like finishing a sprint finish, right, Hannah? And then just in, instantly going into a cross leg position to <laughs> <laughs> keep <laughs> or, it going, keep or it going. Even worse. Yeah. Finish don't, and just don't go into squats right after. What a flex. Like yeah. finish your sprint finish and then start doing air squats right afterwards. It'd be pretty impressive. I'm curious to know, you sparked a question when you started talking about the swimmers and their catch phase mm. um, and the blood pressure. How do you think this would affect someone who's doing weightlifting um because that's another time when i think of blood the systolic blood pressure being really elevated and then suddenly dropping yeah and i can only speculate but when the mayo clinic pointed you know trying desperately for a bowel movement it's kind of the same thing it's it's a heavily forceful contraction and could push you over that syncopic break point interesting Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that and that's also uh, if you're inexperienced in the weight, like if you see uh, an experienced, like Olympic weightlifter, you'll see them bracing. You'll mm-hmm. see them, uh, and and what they're doing is they're they're yes they're doing all of those things because it may help them execute the lift quote better. But better, this is part of better, is their ability to be able to maintain this sort of in, right. this postural integrity and everything else that they need to. But 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 in the case of strength training, I mean we're not we're not using the muscles over and over and over and over again and basically recollecting the blood in a particular part of the body. Rather, it's an on-off sort of endeavor. It doesn't last very long. They might be extremely forceful. Blood pressure may ratchet way up, well beyond that 200 millimeters. I, I don't know, or millimoles, whatever. Millimeters? I don't know how they measure measure blood pressure. But it, it may go quite a bit higher than that. But because it is, use the word again, super transient rather than with such high repetition and there's, I don't know that there's an opportunity for blood accumulation to take place. So when we shut off any muscle pumping action, I don't know that the, that the results are quite so, uh, severe. Have you experienced this ever, Hannah? I've never experienced this. No. When I first read this question, the first thought I had was with orthostatic hypotension, mm-hmm. because I think most people have experienced that. So that was going to be my main question here is if they were, related. So I'm glad that you covered that for the general mm-hmm. public. Yeah. Yeah. I've never experienced this either. I've felt like a uh, weak. Mm-hmm. I hesitate to use the word faint after like a sprint finish where I'm just, you know, absolutely everything that I can, uh, to the line, but it's re- it's impossible for me to look back at that and separate and perceive and, and figure out, you know, what that actually was. I've, so I've never experienced this. Um, thinking of like high, there, the finish line, you, we're kind of creating a perfect storm mm-hmm. in this that, you know, you're sprinting hmm. and you, you, you're really intentionally creating that sort of like pressure block within your body to be able to put out this sort of effort and everything's added up. You're probably dehydrated and thereafter you've given everything and you know, there's, so there's nothing left. We really do create a perfect storm. Um, and you'd think that, um, and I, I, I'm just looking back and I'm trying to think in chat, I might be doing a disservice here, but I can't think of many times when I've witnessed athletes that have had this sort of episode that I can clearly say that this is what they experience vasovagal syncope mm-hmm. instead of just pure fatigue instead of, you know, any number of different things. Um, well, having learned what I've learned, I'm surprised, baffled really that it doesn't happen all the time. Cause it, I mean, that's, yes. it's just such a common way to end a race and especially one that's hotly contested where you could have been out there for hours, you know, five, six hours, then you muster a sprint, then you flop to the ground after the finish line, then you spring back up to your feet or maybe you don't spring back up, but you get back up. I, I don't know how it doesn't happen all the time. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Like Matthew Vanderpool at Amstel Gold, right? That mm-hmm. insane sprint that he had that lasted so long. And then after that, he's on the ground, uh, but was on the ground more just out of disbelief and elation and mm-hmm. exhaustion, and then stands right up right after that, you know? Like, yeah, just like you said. It's amazing. Yeah, it there's there's probably an aspect of the, the, the brain perceiving it as the non-threat that it is, having experienced it so many times in, in probably increasingly severe uh doses, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you don't go from zero fitness to Matthew Vanderpool fitness. You get there over the course of months and years and Olympic cycles and whatnot. Perhaps another benefit of interval training, uh, mm-hmm. is building up that sort of response, that protective response. Very probable. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting. Cool. Any other points on this one, Hannah? No, I think Chad nailed it. Yeah, no doubt. Well done, Chad. Felicity says, after peaking, this one, Hannah, we're going to pass to you. Uh, After peaking, because it's literally your job to peak. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, is it normal to be really, or for it to be really hard to maintain fitness? Are you naturally going to lose some, and fitness once again, after peaking? I was able to raise my FTP about 30 watts from 180 to 210 this summer. Way to go, Felicity. Fantastic job. And time I peak for the end of the road racing season. But after my first race, it became almost impossible to maintain fitness. When I took 10 days off, I gained a few pounds and my FTP dropped 20 watts. To the best of my knowledge, I was not doing anything different nutritionally, but it's possible some life stress was getting in the way. Is this sort of extreme or is this normal? Thanks for the great info you folks give. I love listening to the podcast every week. It's just kind of like a lot to unpack in this one. Um, a lot. But Hannah, why don't we start with peaking? And then we can get into the specific instances that Felicity is going across here. What have you found? Because the Lifetime Grand Prix stressed this in really kind of unique ways because you, you know, it lasted so long, your season. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm seeing a few different things happening in this question and a few different questions actually as well. So I think it's great to break this down. Um, I think the first thing to address is what actually happens when you peak. So when we train, we build fitness, we build fitness, we build fitness. And when we peak, what we're trying to do is recover to the point that we can utilize that fitness to its maximum. But in that recovery process, you're going to lose a small amount of fitness, but it's in favor of freshness. So you're losing fitness in favor of freshness, and that ultimately creates optimal performance. So sometimes for athletes who are really, really hyper aware of their numbers, as they go into quote unquote peak, they might watch some of their numbers dip ever so slightly and feel some sort of nervousness or panic. But then ultimately they will have that remarkable performance because they are fresh. And so with that said, it is normal to you, ex- you experience that drop in fitness, you have that remarkable performance. And then after that, when you're done with that remarkable performance, you're left with that loss of fitness. And so that's why you then need a few weeks in order to regain that fitness before you can peak again. And that's why we say you can't have a race after a race after a race, because if you're just peaking over and over and over, really what you're doing is just resting over and over and over. And eventually your fitness will drop to a point in which it will be noticeable and it will start to hurt you. Um, 
And so that's where some of these series that do have a race every month create a really unique challenge because you can't peak every four weeks. And so you're having to manage freshness with fitness. Um, and, and that's where things like having a really big base can come in because if you have more fitness, you can, you can afford to lose more fitness and still perform at a high level. So I think that's sort of that initial question is, is it normal to lose some fitness when you peak? Yes, absolutely. Should it be noticeable when it comes to your peak race? Probably not because that freshness is going to be even more beneficial than whatever small percentage you lost in your fitness or FTP or however you're measuring that fitness. Now, the backside of that question is 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 separate to me. So is it difficult to maintain or t- is it it be she's um this person says it became almost impossible to maintain fitness after. So if you have another race coming up, probably the most ideal situation is you'd peak, you'd recover a little bit and then you'd begin to build your fitness again. And as a professional athlete, that is what a lot of my season looks like. All since my season goes 10 months a lot of the time, I do peak several times throughout that. But I'm recovering and then I'm rebuilding and then I'm peaking and then recovering and rebuilding and peaking. And so for me, the ability to overcome that and rebuild that fitness is important, but it is a rebuild process. When it can, in my experience, when it becomes this sensation of feeling almost impossible, it's usually a mental and emotional situation. A lot of the times after we peak, we are emotionally exhausted because we put everything we have into this event. And that's okay. And in my experience, it's also better to not fight that because eventually it will come back to get you. It's really hard to overcome those, oh my gosh, that was everything I have. So that's when you sort of have to give in to that loss of fitness a little bit and take that recovery. Um, But that's when it, again, becomes a different situation. So this person says they took 10 days off. 10 days off is a significant amount of time completely off. That would be, to me personally, I think that's longer than just recovering from a peak race. That's taking significant time off, and that's okay. Maybe that's what you needed emotionally and mentally to recover from it. But once you do take 10 days off, that's no longer struggling to maintain fitness after a peak. That is taking some time off and needing to rebuild fitness after a break. Mm. Yeah. Well said, mm-hmm. uh, Chad, your thoughts on this one. Yeah. A couple of points that <clears throat> specific to what Felicity's laid out here is uh, so she elevated her FTP 180 to 210. Was that like a 15% bump? Is that about right? Mm-hmm. So it's substantial. And then the 10 days off led to a 20 watt drop, which is, you know, a 10% decrement or so. I think that's artificial. First off, I don't think you actually lost 20 watts worth of fitness. I think whatever happened on the day when you reassessed, you didn't have that 20 watts. It doesn't mean it it dissipated or evaporated or disappeared. It's still there. Most of it anyway. If you lost any of it, 
so insubstantial, you're going to get it back so quickly. Having had that 10 days off, having had that reset, that it's, it's a non-issue. Let it go. Uh, you said it became impossible to maintain fitness. That strikes a chord with me because that is exactly what peak fitness is. That's the essence of it. You put yourself at a level of fitness that isn't sustainable. You can only hold on to it for a brief period of time. And if everything falls in your favor, that brief period of time happens when you need it most. And then you let that fitness slip away a bit. You move on to a different training cycle, a different season, whatever it may be. And you get after it again, knowing that when you do achieve that peak fitness, it's temporary, cannot be sustained. And then you mentioned that you gained a few pounds. Uh, that's going to happen simply because you, you took time off. And for no other reason, I mean, there's water weight in so many manners, but as an endurance athlete, most of that water weight probably comes in the form of glycogen. So muscles that are perpetually stripped of glycogen and the water that goes with it to, to varying degrees, you just weigh less. I used to flatter myself thinking that I could do a hard criterium on a Tuesday night and skip dinner or just have a protein dinner or some BCAAs, whatever it was, whatever I thought was the right solution, and then wake up the next day and I lost a pound. It's like I knew full well that it wasn't a pound of fat, but I didn't recognize it was probably entirely water. I probably barely even touched my fat stores over the course of the evening. So there's, there's a lot of, of water in and out. So your total body water changes drastically over the course of a day, especially when you're sweating, depleting glycogen, all the things we do as endurance athletes. What stands out to me here, uh, and you all covered those points wonderfully, is I was not doing anything different nutritionally, but it's possible some life stress was getting in the way. In addition to that, I couple that with the statement of it became almost impossible to maintain fitness. And that feels like a lot of anxiety to me about like, oh, how do I hold on to this? And then you have additional life stress as well. Those sort of things, uh, it, it all goes into the same pot and like, and it only has a certain amount of capacity. We can tolerate a certain amount of stress. What the composition of that stress inside that pot is, is really tough to control all the time. But if we're filling it with training stress all the way to the brim and any sort of life stress comes in. The sad part is, is the life stress drops in and in its place, it overspills and we lose some of that training fit, that training stress that was going to be making us faster because the life stress just doesn't bounce off. It, it stays firmly within that pot that we can tolerate. So it's, if you have that sort of thing coming in, and this is really hard because this is the reality of being a human in general, because this isn't like there's an assumption that pros just have this perfectly designed life where everything is perfectly easy and they're the world stops spinning so they can peak for an event. And Hannah, you've shared this year how your year was far from that and how you were dealing with a lot of different setbacks and trials and they seem to always fall nice and close to those lifetime Grand Prix events. <laughs> and for those of us listening to this, maybe you aren't a pro athlete like Hannah but you probably can can sympathize with this or, or relate to it in the sense that it always seems like when we are getting close to an event, we're filling that pot as full as it can be, and then life gives us other things and it just feels like too much. It's, uh, once again, I know this, I sound like a broken record, but this is why I advocate for especially athletes with families, careers, and all the other things that you have going on to train below your limits, just like with a budget, you live below your means and to train below your limits in terms of what you can tolerate because unexpected things do happen. And when you get close to a peak event, you're already adding on a lot of stress on top of that. It just makes it so that you can have more reliable performances when it comes to important days. 
And that's, it makes it a whole lot easier to peak multiple times in a season. Like Hannah said, when you aren't running everything so close to that line, uh, so much so that you're crossing that line quite regularly. So that's, that's my advice in this case, Felicity. That said, Felicity, fantastic job on trying to pick a point in your season to peak. This is one that we talk about many times with athletes, Chad being a criterium racer and you know, as we know, crit racers, they might race two and even more than two times in a weekend, uh, depending on if they have a lot of different races they can do, they can race multiple times in a day. They could race back to back days, do all that. And Chad had a whole long list of races that he'd be doing every year, but he still picked the ones that he wanted to peak for amongst all of them. And that is really liberating and cool because then you can go to races without expectations. Some of them and no, nah, I'm not supposed to perform at my peak right now. It's okay. And it just allows you to learn and do all that. So Felicity, you're doing some fantastic stuff here. I'm being able to do that. The other so. encouragement that I want to give is Felicity might be thinking, oh my gosh, I put in all of this work to raise my FTP 30 watts and now I've lost 20 of them. And it's going to be just as hard to, I have mm. to work just as hard to get up there. And no, you don't. Your body already has systems in place to be able to get you to that 210 that you were at. So it will be easier to get back to where you were than getting there the first time. So be encouraged. Oh, that's true. Really Coupling that with what Chad said, your ability to express your FTP might be temporarily depressed, but over time it comes back quite quickly, quickly. So, uh, mm-hmm. and Greg I, I, Wall, this, this oh, is sorry. actually a really good demonstration of something and a 30 watt bump uh, on top of a 180 watt FTP is a pretty substantial one, but man, I'm, I'm coming more around to the, uh, I'm, I find a lot of appeal in the idea of gradual incremental improvement over the course of not even multiple seasons, but multiple years. Because I look at someone like Felicity who, if you could achieve even 20 watts, but do it on an annual basis for four or five years in a row, you're looking at a sizable increase, a very different athlete from start to finish. And it's far more realistic than recognizing, not not that we have a magic ball and we could say, here's what my genetic potential is, how quickly can I get there? But rather, my genetic potential is probably tremendous. I'm just going to make that assumption and I'm going to strive to make, again, smaller but incremental consistent gains from season to season, year to year. And at the end of it, man, 30 watts is going to seem like nothing. You, you, you nudge that up 70, 80, 100 watts, who knows? It could happen. And it, it's, I think it's far more attainable than a lot of people recognize. Yeah, great point. I'm motivated. I'm on a train right now. Thanks, <laughs> uh, Gregoire, again, I've said this many times. I hope I am pronouncing that correctly. Uh, hello and hope this wasn't covered before. As I invest more time into my training, I'm considering going to altitude. The problem is that I can't take longer than two weeks off of work. This is barely enough time to get some hard workouts done. Given acclimatization typically takes one week as advised. That's Gregoire's guess. Would using an altitude temp prior to the holidays make the acclimatization period slightly shorter? If not, what should be the most productive way to spend those two weeks? And then Gregoire questions, should I just taper? (laughs) Uh, Is it even worth going to altitude for two weeks? Uh, Thanks in advance. So go to trainer or youtube.com slash trainer road. And go check out our altitude training video because we run through the specifics on not how to adapt to altitude, but instead how to build an altitude training camp and the whole point behind it. And also the science on whether it works or whether it doesn't work. And it's uh, science and research 
shows that perhaps it's not as reliable as we think at delivering the sort of performance gains that we want, uh, which is typically, they say, anywhere between 1% to 2%, which, and you'll see this on the video, but I mentioned it doesn't seem like a lot, but in an hour-long criterium, finishing just you know a minute off the leader is 1% to 2% what you're dealing with right there. So that's that would be huge. That would be a massive margin. Um, so 1% to 2% does matter. Uh, th- so go check out the video to learn all about that aspect of how altitude training works. But Hannah, in your perspective about adaptation or acclimatization, like we're talking about to altitude, what are your thoughts on Gregoire here? What would you say to, to him on such a time crunch schedule? Yeah, I'm curious here because Gregoire mentions that he says, or they say that going to altitude for two weeks, is this just for a training camp? At first I thought that, but then he, they mentioned tapering. So I'm wondering if this is prior to an event. Um, so I kind of wanted to talk about both of those situations because I think it's valuable. So cool. if you go to elevation just for two weeks to train, I don't think it's that valuable. Two weeks just isn't really long enough. Um, all you're really going to see during those two weeks is a decline in your numbers. So you're <laughs> not <true>. going to be <laughs> hitting the powers and the wattages that you need to be hitting. You might be able to stress your system high enough, but your muscles aren't going to be pushing the amount of force that they can at your standard elevation or at sea level. So you might actually have a slight decline if you only go up for two weeks. Longer amount of times, you might experience something different because your body will make the adjustments, your red blood cells, your hematocrit, that's when things start to change, but that doesn't occur just in two weeks. And so you're likely just going to go through the discomfort and possibly even negative psychological Uh effects of going up to altitude and not benefit from it. And so in terms of a training camp, I, I don't, Highly recommend it. And I'd love to hear what Chad has on that. Just, just I'm hanging up on the two-week duration. All I see that is a shift in allostatic load. So, mm-hmm. And we talk, we've talked about allostasis a lot, but it's just you know, homeostasis is, the, is balance. That's where we try to reside. And when we disrupt homeostasis, we put ourselves in a, a state of allostasis. So allostasis is the process of returning us to homeostasis. So all you're doing is taking the allostatic load associated from the hard training you could be doing at closer to sea level and shifting it to a new stress, which is adjusting to the demands of altitude, but blunting or muting your ability to work hard enough to actually bring about the stimulus you're looking for. So it's not long enough for you to adjust to it and to be able to do some work up there. It's just enough time to shift the allostatic load toward altitude and away from, from actual bike riding. Yeah. And I have two thoughts on this. Like number one, that most of the studies show that by the end of two weeks, you might start to get the point where your rise in red blood cell volume might be, it might be efficient or effective. However, your training has to be managed very closely in order to achieve that. Uh, so when you're at an altitude training camp, the goal is not to train hard. Uh, in this case, Gregoire, you're mentioning the fact that what should I do when I'm up there and wondering if, you know, should do get in hard workouts. You should not be doing hard workouts when you go up to altitude. Uh, ideally you're in a spot where you can just spend time up at altitude, but then train down low. So in a place like where Hannah's at, like park city, Utah is like a really good spot for this. 
because you can train down at 4,000 feet of elevation or like 1,500 meters, I think. And then you can go up in elevation to Park City, Utah, which is six to 7,000 feet, which tends to be kind of like the ideal spot. And then at that point, then you can get in your easy rides that you do up there. But really the goal is just to spend time there. The goal isn't to train up there. It's just to spend time because you're hoping, like Chad said, when you're talking about shifting that baseline of what normal is, you're hoping that you can just spend enough time up there at elevation that your body goes, Oh, I need to shift what's normal. There's not enough oxygen up here. I'm going to make more red blood cells and I can have more oxygen. But all this is typically this is done. So like you, you bring up a good point, Hannah, typically this is done before a goal event. And there's like a one to two week washout period that a person has in between returning from altitude and whatever their goal event is, because it does provide for unproductive training. Like Mm -hmm. the two or more weeks that you're at altitude, you could be down at low elevation, just crushing it and getting faster. But instead, what the theory is here is you're already at peak fitness. There's not a lot to be gained. And instead, what you're trying to do is pack your blood full of red blood cells so you can have more oxygen once you're down at sea level you can utilize more oxygen. That's the the theory behind the whole thing. But it's a weird time to do an altitude training camp in the Northern hemisphere right now, because most, you know, races aren't happening. It's, you typically see this done when athletes are somewhere within four to two weeks out from a, a goal event is when they do it more often. So yeah, it, it is strange circumstances for sure. Mm-hmm. Altitude just makes you slower. It's mm-hmm. like, it doesn't make you faster. The only benefit from it is if you can come back, if you manage it very well and then come back down to low elevation. Mm -hmm. The only other thing I wanted to touch on with this is if the event is at altitude and you're talking about having two weeks to spend at altitude prior to that event. And that's where I think what Jonathan mentioned is right at the end of that two weeks is when your body is starting to make the adaptations that you need in order to actually feel normal at altitude. And so two weeks is a good amount of time. It's considered, quote unquote, the minimum amount of time um, in order to be acclimated for that event. So everyone's different. You might need a little bit less. You might need a little bit more. And that is where experience comes in. And that's the first question I always ask someone if they're talking about what should I do for altitude? Well, have you been there before? Have you experienced it? What is your sensations like? For me, I know that my third day at altitude is always the worst. So (laughs) I never want to race on the third day. Um, It's just something I've experienced that's unique to me. Um, But Beyond that, I think it's just really important to understand the things that you can do to help yourself when you go to altitude. So really the lowest hanging fruit that can have the biggest impact is um, hydration. And I know that this is something that people say all the time, and it seems so simple that we think, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it really is critical for elevation and altitude. And one of the reasons is because you do actually lose more water at high elevation due to non-sensible water loss, such as the dry air literally sucking the water out of you. (laughs) So you do need to drink more fluids. You also need to increase your carbohydrate intake. And I know that carbohydrates are talked out on this podcast all the time. So it's so on brand to say, (laughs) yeah, it is important, especially at altitude. You need to increase that. And it's likely that your um, appetite will be suppressed at altitude as well. So it becomes, I don't usually track 
my calories or food. But when I go to altitude, that's a time when I know I need to because I can't rely on my hunger um, response. So increasing carbohydrates and then also understanding you're not going to recover as well. You're not going to sleep as well. And so that's where increasing your recovery time and decreasing the intensity of your workouts, especially if you're going into a race, is really critical. Your standard pre-race routine might actually be too intense at that high of altitude in order to recover from. So less is definitely more at high altitude. I've, I mirror that in terms of the warm up, I warm up a hundred percent by feel and I give myself plenty of time to do it when I'm up at altitude in the United States for us mountain bikers. We've had mountain bike national championships up at winter park, Colorado for, uh, too many years is the number of years. Um, <laughs> so, and it's, it's probably still going to be there. Who knows? But, um, that one is so tricky and you see some athletes pushing really hard in their warm up because that's just what they're used to doing. You have to change things. It's just, it's really, really complicated. Um, I found that the biggest difficulty I feel with, with altitude for me is sleep. Mm-hmm. And I can try to be, and I, I almost feel helpless because I've got all these things that I do to help with sleep, right? I've got earplugs. I've got an eye mask. I've got, I might even bring something that can make white noise. I can do all the, whatever I need to do. I can try to engineer all of those things. But the fact is you, you sleep for eight hours at altitude versus sleeping eight hours anywhere else. And you just, you feel like you slept for half the time. It and feels like jet lag. It does. And it starts to add up. Like you said, that third day is just rough fourth day. I find that I don't feel good until it's like seven days. And for me, in most cases, it's not feasible to go up a week before. So I just try to get up there the day before day before and and go after it that way. But it is quite complicated. Um, Altitude tents. Is that something that you've used? I mean, you kind of you live so close to altitude. I'm not sure it's ever been useful for you, Hannah, but. No, like you said, I live at altitude, so I've never used one, but I know a lot of athletes who have, as I'm sure you both do too. And I think the general consensus that I've heard with altitude tents is while it can be beneficial, there is a big cost to it, quite literally, financially. It's very expensive. And also, USD. It's really expensive. And also, they're just not quite that comfortable. So there's a cost and also it depends if you're a sensitive sleeper or if you mm. sleep with someone else, it it's uncomfortable. <laughs> they're tight. They're small. You might end up actually giving up some good sleep and some good recovery in favor of whatever adaptations you're going to gain from it and figuring out which is more important is a little bit of a gamble at that point mirroring this back to the very the question we just covered of running things so close to the line peaking for an event that sort of thing doesn't this seem just unnecessarily risky when you think about going up you know just before an event especially for an athlete that likely could get gains elsewhere before doing something like this yeah i think that this is just um yeah it's 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 just a lot to me it's a lot of extra stress that doesn't need to be there Because you have to think when you're talking about traveling to altitude or an altitude tent, it's not, it's not just the things we've talked about. It's also, if you're talking about traveling, it's 
days off to travel. It's packing your bike in a bike case. It's finding places to ride that you're not used to or figuring out how to bring your indoor setup. When it comes to the tent, it's finding the right one, doing the research. It's all of these little things that we don't think about until we're in it. And gosh, those things can really add up. And it's a load mentally, which comes out and manifests in a physical sense. And and probably to do with all those variables that Hannah just listed and others is what I find most unsettling about this is it's not even consistent across the same athlete. So you can have, and Vanderpool's a good example of this, and we talk about him a lot, but we saw him fall, not fall apart, fall apart, relatively speaking, at the Tour de France because he just got off of an altitude camp. He'd probably done that very altitude camp times before and had good results due to it. But this time, not so much. And and there there are just a lot of factors. It may not have even been the altitude. That's what they attributed it to. But there are other things that go into just getting to the altitude camp, getting from the altitude camp, all the logistical challenges that Hannah just described on top of who knows what else was going on in his life at the time. Yeah. I mentioned that in the video, Cyberman and Dempsey had their perspective where they said hypoxic training is not beneficial in elite athletes. And they reference a study and I can't remember that off the top of my head, the researchers names, um, it's linked in that video, but they mentioned a study where they tried to replicate a response to altitude training for the same athletes. And it was a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get it to happen. So they had a washout period engineered within there and it was a responsibly done thing. It wasn't the hugest sample size, but still, um, it's tough. Like you said, it's, uh, there are a lot of other things you could put your focus on and resources into, because even if you don't buy an altitude tent, altitude places are so expensive, like high altitude, <laughs> they always are. And getting there is tough. So there's a lot better spots to put your resources into. I agree. Yeah. Hannah, is there anything else you'd want to cover on this one? No, I think, I think that covers it. Cool. Will's question says, Hey folks, longtime listener here. I've listened to every episode at least once, but this is the first time I've had a question worthy of asking. Ah, well, you've probably had other ones that are worthy of asking, but I appreciate you submitting them. You can do so at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And I would appreciate everybody going there. If you're a master's athlete and you have questions about nutrition needs that are unique to masters, Sarah Laverty, uh, host of the science of getting faster podcast. She's actually making an episode right now, or she's prepping an episode with a researcher about master's athlete nutrition. And if you have any questions that are unique needs of masters, please submit them at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And I'll send them over to Sarah. So so then she can get them there. Will says I've constantly run into issues with bike fit, but live in an area that had no access to a bike fitter. So I just fiddled with the position on my own. I recently came across discussions about my velo fit on your forum. That's a, an app that they're talking about there. It supposedly uses AI to dial in your fit. I used it and am noticeably more comfortable on my bike and even saw some improvements in power. My question is, how often should I get a bike fit? The website had two options, one for two weeks of access and one for one year of access. I went with a one-year plan because it seemed like it made the most sense from a price perspective, and I have multiple bikes, so it gave me time to work on each of them. But I'm curious, should I be checking my fit that regularly? Additionally, how often do the podcast team get their bikes fit? Uh, Hannah, again, if you don't mind kicking us off on this one, since you're the pro athlete and you race on mountain bikes, gravel bikes, and heck, like you train on a road bike, how often do you get fit and what's your process like? Yeah, I think that um, this is a question I really had to think about because I think so I would say I go in to a professional fit anytime I get a new bike. 
But that said, anytime I change something significant on my bike, for example, if I put a new saddle on my bike, I am then going to use the measurements that the fit specialist gave me to make the necessary changes to tweak my position because that's where a lot of people can get thrown off is, for example, again, if you change a saddle, that saddle might not be identical to your other saddle. So it might actually change your position relative to the cranks. And so you'll want to make sure that when you make those small changes, your overall fit is staying the same. And that goes for changing when you get a wider handlebar or something like that. You need to make constantly be making adjustments. So for me, like I said, I go in for a professional fit every time I get a new bike to set my fit according to that bike. But then I am constantly using those numbers, measuring, and that's going to be different for everyone if because it, it can get a little bit complicated. Um, so if you're good at that kind of thing, you can probably do it on your own according to the measurements the fit specialist gave you. But if you're not great at that, you might need to constantly go in for sort of refreshes and checkups Um, and then the other thing you probably want to consider is like Jonathan said, I do ride on a lot of different bikes, but I actually try and have those bikes be pretty similar in fit, um, especially the saddle position. The reach might vary a little bit from bike to bike, but I find that I can perform the best when my body knows the position I get on the bike. I immediately feel comfortable. I think that it helps mitigate injuries as well. So that's really important to me also. And so when I hear uh, I have multiple bikes that gave me time to work on each of them, I would encourage you to set all of them pretty much the same and then adjust from there rather than trying to set up a different position initially for each of them. Great advice. Chad, when was the last time you had a fit? I was just trying to figure that out. It had to be, I think, 2007 or 2008. So it's been quite some time. Wow long time. Yeah. And, and it was a good fit and I did learn some things from it, Sp- uh, specifically a slightly lower saddle brought about, uh, less back pain, more power, uh, just greater comfort on the bike, even though it was a bit of an adjustment. And in fact, me and another rider had the same fit done within a couple of days and we were on the same Saturday ride together, both feeling like we were pedaling tricycles. It just felt, and we're probably <laughs> maybe three or four millimeters lower or centimeters lower. It just, and it felt that drastically different. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm scarred. Maybe I don't want to have a bike fit again because I don't want to go, go through that, that process. But <laughs> honestly, though, I think because I've been riding bikes for quite some time and I've transitioned between so many bikes, whether it's associated with changing racing teams or just, you know, having the luxury of working for trainer road and just, we go, we go through some bikes and, and I have <laughs> built my own bikes a number of times in the last few years and I've gotten to the point where, and this won't be helpful for anybody, but I'll tell you anyway, I can just look at it. I put it together mm-hmm. and I look at it and it's like, mm, yeah, that's pretty close. And I get on and at times I don't change anything. And this might be a matter of I've gotten so good at recognizing my fit on a bike, regardless of what type of bike, mountain bike, cross bike, road bike, whatever. Or it could simply be that I'm not finicky, that, that if it's close enough, I can make it work and I don't dwell on it too, too much. So, and I know there's been that distinction made a number of times between those people who, I mean, Eddie Merckx, he'd hop on and off his bike a thousand times or, or Miguel Indurain, whomever, just because there was something that was just slightly off. 
Whereas me, if I, I know in a race scenario, if I had to take a teammate's bike, I'd just hop on that thing and probably wouldn't even be concerned with giving it back at the end of the day. Yeah. If my yeah, saddle I'm, is uh, a millimeter off, I know it. I feel like you're probably really? the same, Jonathan, are you? <laughs> I, I have learned, I've trained myself against that. Uh, so I will okay. recognize it, but I've learned to be like, yeah, I'm okay beyond it. Um, I'm really average. Like I'm average in so many ways mm. and in, in, in proportions, I'm very average. So I'm a pretty easy fit. I'm sure I'm thinking of like of a successful athlete podcast guest that we had Zach Josie, who has a rare form of dwarfism. He has been through and he will for the rest of his life, go through constant battles of trying to find the right setup. He has a custom tri bike. Now it's so cool. Um, it's really cool. He's gone through the whole process of getting it worked out, but so there, there are are people that are listening to this that are probably like, ah, it's super easy. Like I got one fit and I feel fine. And that's kind of my situation. I was fit way back when, when I started cycling and I was like, eh, I'm not sure I really like this. So then I went and used competitive cyclist bike fitter tool. And cause I was really like long and stretched out. My saddle was really far back. And then I used competitive cyclist bike fitter tool and I followed that and I was like, oh, this feels wonderful. And then I've had multiple fits since then. And every time they just go, yep, yeah, you're in the right spot. Like there's no, um, change. The one thing I do like is on with the retool fit system. It's cool because they basically have a database of information that based on your proportions, uh, when you sit on the bike and they know every, all the measurements of the bike and everything else, they give you a range for like where your back angle should be, where everything should be. It's not, they give you a number, they give you a range and you can see where you fall within that range. And it's fun to be able to experiment within that. Um, my friends at, uh, locally here, Sierra bike supply is, uh, they, they have a retool set up there and it's awesome. Um, I just was fitted on that and I'm going to be fit on my TT bike soon. Once again, it's all kind of the, the same for some people it's easy for others. It isn't, but the one thing I do want to warn against is, uh, you want to, we get a lot of athletes that ride in saying that they have knee injuries in particular, or some other lower limb injury or back pain. And they're like, I, I think that it's because I moved my saddle one millimeter or two millimeters. And I'm like, if you've got an issue with your joints, fix that issue and don't just focus on the bike fit because you're working on like, unless it's really far out. But if you're talking about a small change that you made or something like that, and it's causing a dramatic issue, that's been a recurring issue for a very long time, it's likely not the source of the issue. You're probably just, you know, scratching the surface of something that needs to be changed much deeper. The only thing that I would add is that my fits also evolved and changed over the years um, because my body, and that even happens within a season. Like I get my, you know, take some time off and then, and I don't spend a lot of time in the drops. And then once I get to race season, I'm in the drops the whole time, or maybe I don't work on mobility and suddenly I am, it, it all changes. So you do have to be okay with moving things around a bit. Um, I'm not sure if any of that was helpful whatsoever. I, ra I rambled too long. I apologize. The other encouragement I would give is if you're not used to getting a fit and you go in and you have some things changed, what I've always been told and my experience has matched with this is that it takes two weeks to truly know if that position is good for you or not. So it probably will feel weird and it probably will feel weird for several rides. So Give yourself at least two weeks in that new position before you decide, nope, this isn't for me. And it might not be. I've definitely gotten a fit and then decided, you know what? I am going to adjust this slightly even after because it's personal preference. But give it at least two weeks because 
Sometimes I've also left and been like, absolutely not. This is so weird. And then two weeks later, <laughs> this is super comfortable. I mm-hmm. love it. So you just have to allow that time for your body to adjust. Well said. All right. Last question from Eric it says, I used to ride and race XC a lot in 2021, but since I now have an eight month old, most of my training is done in the garage. Then in order to do that, I have to do early morning workouts at 5:30 AM in order to get it done before work. So since I work out so early in the morning, I do not eat breakfast or a bar, but just do cold brew and a gel gels get expensive. So I've recently switched to eating dates instead. I've looked at the nutrition for dates and they appear to have the same amount of carbs via sugars as gels do. So my question is, is this a good substitute and do dates absorb as quickly to help with my morning workouts since I do not feel like eating that early in the morning? Uh, what do you say about dates, Chad? Uh, yes, I I think it's a a workable solution and what's being described here, I'm going to guess isn't anything in excess of a couple hours, which if it were, then I would start to concern how many dates can you eat? But in, in, in favor of <clears throat> dates themselves, I did find a, an actual paper, a 2022 paper, I think, on, on Sukari dates, date, uh, palm, what's it called? Uh, let me just read the title. Sugar profile, volatile compounds, composition, and antioxidant activity of Sukari date palm fruit. So very relevant paper. I mean, it's not often that you find exactly the paper you're looking for, but I did this time. <laughs> and uh, Maybe it's actually – maybe the author is Eric. Eric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just trying to push his paper on the masses. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the sugar composition is actually super favorable because you know all the talk these days. I mean, the, the trend where, where sports nutrition science has taken us is a one to one split between fructose and uh, or fructose as it's often pronounced and glucose, and that's that's what we're looking at with dates. So that definitely weighs heavily in the favor of dates. Uh, my only concern would be the fiber content, and it's not a ton of fiber, but there is fiber in there. So if you're using it for you know an hour, hour and a half, maybe up to a two hour ride you're probably fine because you're only looking for what, maybe 30 grams of carbohydrate per hour. When you push into those upper reaches and you're cresting two hours, pushing up two and a half, three hours, and you need to start ingesting 60 as high as 90, maybe higher, that's going to be a tough, tough uh, order to fill if you're just using dates. And I don't think that's what's being described here, but they are rather caloric, uh, 414 calories per cup. That's quite a lot of dates, but that's also a fair amount of calories I don't think – I don't know. I can only imagine what your your caloric demands are, what type of workouts you're doing. But, you know, if you find yourself experiencing gastric distress, you know, you're probably eating too many dates. Um, I, that's, I think that's all I got. This is uh, – the fiber concerns me. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that, you know, slows down digestion. Um, once again, like you said, Chad, it's probably not a big deal if it's just like an hour or two long workout. But mm-hmm. – uh, we, you know, Eric last week, we talked a lot or maybe it was two weeks ago about sugar and salt and mixing them into your, your bottles. Like we're looking at 440 calories per cup. That is a lot of dates to take in. Uh, if you mix your drink mix at 90 grams of carbs in your bottle and you just get glucose and fructose and put that in there, that's 360 calories you're getting and you're already going to be drinking that bottle. It's just pretty easy and, and relatively cheap. Uh, that said, I can understand, you know, dates may be a bit more accessible or just easy to deal with and everything else. So you could do I, worse. I think, yeah, I think you could do a lot worse. I think as a supplemental form of carbohydrate, when you want that pretty even split, I, I don't think there's a better fruit out there. I don't know what the, the sugar content is in a banana is, but I don't think it's a pretty even 50-50 split, although I could be wrong. 
Yeah, and I'm curious also the fiber content of a banana uh, compared to that of a date. Need a paper know, on bananas. Thank you. That's probably out there. Eric, get on it. Researcher. <laughs> get busy. Hannah, uh, how about you? Any any thoughts on this one, like the real food alternative here? I've definitely eaten dates before in rides because I think like two medjool dates, if I'm saying that right, is like mm-hmm. 30 grams of carbohydrates. <laughs> so in many ways, that's very similar to a gel um, in terms of grams of carbs. So I think it's great. Do I think it is the best? Probably not. But it's better than nothing, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people who are training at 5.30 in the morning go the nothing route. So good for you for finding something that works. <laughs> and I think it's an excellent alternative. I would be curious if you've experimented with drink mix. Because that was my first mm-hmm. thing I thought is gels do get expensive. Also, when I wake up in the morning... A gel is also not the first thing that I want to eat. Um, so if you're, if it's simply you don't want to eat, you're not really feeling putting something in your mouth, drink mix seems like a great alternative. Um, and it, it's, it is, it still comes at a cost, but in my experience, drink mix is less expensive than gels. For sure. I've, uh, for those asking, and once again, <clears throat> if you're curious about the, we have a lot of people sending in questions to the podcast, like what is the glucose and fructose that you get? Just go to my Instagram, Lee Jonathan underscore, and then there's I have it pinned. And if you look at it, the links are literally in the description. You can find it there. So um yeah, that's what I would say. It, if y'all be more like Megan Hackinen, wrapping it back around to the beginning, and you drink your carbs, you'll save money and you'll get a lot faster. So, you know, I just, she did it for 24 hours. So you can do it for an hour. <laughs> uh, you know? Well, this is awesome. Great episode. Thanks a bunch, Hannah. I appreciate it. Uh, your base training now, do you know when your first race is? I mean, they, I would assume they're going to have you back to the lifetime grand prix considering you won Leadville, um, (laughs) and placed so well in the series, but when do you plan for your first race to be? I'm planning on my first race in February. I'll go back to Puerto Rico again. Ooh, cool. For Mm -hmm. the XEO stuff that Mm -hmm. they have there. Yep. That's cool. That'll be awesome. Yeah. We'll be here before we know it. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. Uh, well, if you're listening to this now and you haven't signed up and tried out AI FTP detection, it is a resounding success. Go to trainerroad.com and sign up. People are loving it. It's fantastic. You don't have to test anymore. It's so good. So go to www.trainerroad.com and sign up and we will talk to you all next time. Thanks everybody. Take care. Thanks everybody. Thanks.